Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, welcome back. Um, we are just absolutely thrilled to have uh, with us today uh, Jeremiah Workman. Uh, Jeremiah, hey, thanks thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, really appreciate it. So uh, for those of you who are, aren't familiar, Jeremiah Workman is a uh, Navy Cross recipient uh, for his um, actions in Fallujah with 3-5. Um, got out of the Marine Corps in uh, 2009 as a staff sergeant, then uh, wrote the book Shadow of the Sword, which was published in 2009. Fast forward to 2022, you're on the GOP ticket for Lieutenant Governor of Ohio. Um, yeah, man, this is just really, uh, from the outside looking in, just such a fascinating journey, man. You mind um, telling us a little bit about sort of your path to the yellow footprints and then, you know, what proceeded and then onto the campaign trail. Yeah. You know, I, sometimes when I sit back and I think about what's transpired over the last 20 years, it's just, it has been kind of a wild ride. Um, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. You know, going to, I always knew I was going to go to the military. My, my dad was in the army. My grandfather was in the army. Um, to be totally transparent. I think I joined the Marine Corps to piss my dad off. <laughs> um, but on, you know, on a more serious note, I, I always had heard about Marines. I didn't necessarily, you know, growing up in Ohio, there's no bases or, in, you know, we have an air force base in Ohio, but didn't know a whole lot about it. Uh, but the older I got, especially when I got into high school and I was able to start doing a little bit of research, um, I was drawn to the Marine Corps by the mission, the amphibious aspect of it. Uh, but Really what sealed the deal for me was uh, when the recruiter walked in lunchtime in his dress blues, I was like, man, that's it right there. That's Dude, that is the seller, man. That Joe's right. dress blues, just bring them in. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I wish there was more to it, but man, I just, I, I, everybody in that cafeteria stopped doing what they were doing. And they were watching this recruiter walk through. And I was like, my goodness, that, that is cool as hell so yeah. <laughs> you know and that was uh you know that was pre 9-11 I get, I get to Paris Island and um I got there August 19th obviously September 11th happened a couple, couple weeks after we got there and uh you know it just it obviously it changed it changed the whole demeanor of recruit training um everything became more serious um not that we knew a difference between how they trained before, but you could just tell the drill instructors amp things up quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I look back and it's just, it has been a wild, amazing ride. And, uh, I'm just glad to be here to still be vertical and talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, man, we were so happy to have you on to, to talk about your story. Cause it's, it's really so fascinating. So what is that like? So we've talked a little bit on the show. I'm a pre 9-11 guy as well. Um, you know, from my, uh, you know, sort of, you know, aperture, going in, uh, essentially, I was in uh, during the Clinton era. Dude, right. there was just nothing on the horizon. Like, all of the meat eaters were going on Muse. Right. If you were really lucky uh, and, you know, uh, hard as woodpecker lips, you got to do a Neo right. or maybe some sort of crisis response. 
but like the idea of a full-on war, man, it was just not on anybody's radar. Is that kind of the echo a little bit about what you were? Yeah, yeah, because when I joined, you know, I thought in my mind I'm going to do a, a a med cruise or a pack, yeah. you know, float or something, and I'm going to see the world. I'm going to, you know, and my goal is to do four years, get out, come home to Ohio, and be a Ohio State Highway Patrolman. Oh, okay. That, that was my original goal. Um, and like you said, when 9-11 kicked off, um, it just not, it didn't worry me. It didn't, I just knew things were going to be different. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I honestly feel like I'm lucky to have had the opportunity to serve my country during a time of war. Um, you know, you practice, 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 um, I think most people would agree. Eventually, you like to take the what you've learned in practice and, and execute it in a real situation, um, you know. But yeah, it was just I, I'm very thankful. I people ask me all the time, you know, would you do it again? Absolutely. Yeah. Would I like to change a few things that, that happened in Fallujah? Absolutely, we all would. But um, to have that opportunity to wear my nation's cloth in a time of war. I mean, for me, it's just something that I cherish. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to talk about um, some of those, you know, the ripple effects of uh, sort of how the world unfolded for all of us, but you in particular, um, you know, between, you know, 2004 and then even today, um, but I guess going back, because I'm so fascinated by this, because I think you're the first person I talked to who was actually on the drill field as a recruit during 9-11. That's, um, I mean, what was that like? Because I know, you know, I, I went through OCS, so it's a little different. But you right. are sort of just in like this bubble and you're just the only sort of interaction with the outside world is whatever they allow you to have. Um, right. Obviously, as, as officer candidates, you get a little more freedom um later on in the cycles um but i mean current events the world outside and like every like all the alligators are in the boat already man like you don't <laughs> there's, there's no looking down river um so what was that like for you because I, I hate to say like oh this just became real because for anybody who's going through recruit training it's it's already fucking very real yeah um you, you know i'm glad you asked that question because i'll never forget where i was at when apparently the the first plane hit, yeah. uh, we we were in line at at the barber shop on Paris Island, um, and the barbers I'll never forget the barbers come running out yelling we're under attack we're under attack, and I remember standing there thinking, is Paris Island under attack? Is Buford? Yeah. You know I have no idea. Um, so we didn't get our haircuts. They took us back to the barracks. Um, we kind of tooled around there a little bit, but they took us to the recruit training center, big classroom, and the battalion commander came in and told us what had happened. Uh, but what was really weird about it is I ne- we never saw a newspaper. We never saw a TV. We never saw anything. It was just this guy's word on what had mm. happened. So even after, you know, I graduated November 16th, and I, I hate to say it, it was almost like 9-11 never happened for me. Yeah, yeah. Like, the only way I knew that something had happened was because 
when I got home on my 10 days leave after boot camp, obviously our country was still in mourning. You know, people were angry. People were pissed. People were uh, emotional. But for me, it, it kind of like it never happened because I never saw anything. I yeah. never, I never had anything. That's so crazy. So, I mean, so the first time you saw anything like visually about the attacks on 9-11, the Pentagon, the World Trade Center was almost two, three months after it actually occurred. Right. Dude, that, that is nuts. Yeah, and that's that's something I will always remember because, you know, the drive from Paris Island back to Ohio for that 10 days of leave, I was just picking my dad's brain. I'm like, what, what is going on? What happened? Like, I just couldn't wrap my arms around the fact that somebody did this to our country. Yeah. That they attacked us on our soil like this. That's insane. So, so then you go off to SOI, your SOI East, is that right? Right. Um, and then you know you're going, you, your first duty station was 5th Marines, is that correct? No, I actually uh, got sent to security forces down in Kings Bay, Georgia. Oh my gosh, I was in Jacksonville, Florida, the I and I, I know all about Kings Bay, man. Right. You know, I, I, I was a little... Uh, irritated about going there uh, i knew i was going i mean i had a security forces contract yeah but i thought when i signed the contract you know the video they show you at the recruiting <laughs> office is like <laughs> you're like on a, a swat team you're yeah yeah playing onto us you know doing all this high speed stuff and um i the, i was a professional firewatch marine for two years basically at king's bay yeah uh, Meanwhile, a lot of my buddies that were just, you know, infantry and didn't do the whole security forces, they were already deploying over to Iraq mm -hmm. or, you know, Afghanistan, I think, first and then then on to Iraq. But it was tough because a lot of us there, we, we thought we were going to miss our turn. Mm. We, we didn't know that this was going to drag out for 20 years, you know. And, yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of angst there that, man, we're here we are standing fire watch and yeah it's an important mission you know regarding nuclear weapons but we want to get in the fight yeah and all i mean and correct me if i'm wrong but um i mean all of you guys are oh threes um, right yeah and that is a i mean that's a standard two three year tour right like yeah it, it's a two-year tour when you come straight out of soi to security forces school yeah you're going to do two years uh, minimum Sometimes they try to extend you, you know, based on the needs of the command. But um, we knew if the war went went on, they weren't going to extend us. They need, they were going to need grunts out in the fleet. So yeah, um, yeah. I'm just trying to think of the timeline because I know. I mean, we had a very similar, but I guess on the other side of the coin, thought. Uh, you know, as we were sort of retrograding out of Baghdad, that it was like. You know, mission, you know, you get, you get the president, you know, flying in, landing on aircraft carriers, mission accomplished, you know, and we're like, we're it, man. Like, we are going to be the big dogs, uh, you know, got my combat action ribbon, like, right. we are going to be Joe Toe. And then I go out on recruiting duty, and by the time I make it back in uh, 06, you know, there are Lance Corporals that are on their third deployment right. in 24 months, and they, you know, they're three stacked high, and I'm, I'm like, well, here's my NAM and my combat action ribbon. Like, hey guys. Well, I'll tell um, you, you know, when 
when I left Kings Bay and got orders to 5th Marines, um, they had just gotten back from OIF-1. And that same thing. I, I show up. I'm a corporal with a good cookie. And uh, you got PFCs running around with 18 ribbons. I mean, <laughs> right. and I'm like, holy crap, this is, this is intimidating. I mean, you know. Um, but hearing their stories, and I was like, man. And one thing that I'll never forget is the first battle of Fallujah actually kicked off right when I got to Free Front. And I remember sitting on my couch in my little apartment in Oceanside watching the footage on, you know, on the news of the Vigilant Resolve, thinking, I missed it. I, I missed the fight. I, I was so, yeah. I had this pit in my stomach that I was, there. that was my opportunity, and we missed it. Uh, not knowing that I would be in that city, you know, not long after that, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, less than a year, right? Right, man, that is so crazy. That is, uh, it's just so interesting to see because there are so many of these stories. You know, one of the things we talk about on the show is how stories matter, uh, and there's just so many of these little things that we sort of take for granted, um, because you sort of, I don't know, at least from my perspective, it's like, uh, you know, I see the world, like I said, through my aperture, and I just sort of miss the point that, like, well, just because everybody was there with me doesn't mean that everybody was seeing it the same way. Right. Um, so, man, it's so it's so fascinating to hear, uh, you know, what, you know, your sort of perspectives on that. So um, I guess Fifth Marines is sort of a reoccurring theme here on the show. We had um, Tom Schumann on twice. He's now the OPSO of uh, three five. He wrote the book um, Always Faithful yep. about his time uh, in uh, Sangin and then how then just recently he worked, you know, uh, tirelessly uh, to get his linguist um, Zach out of uh, out of Kabul uh, as right. the Taliban were taking over him. Mean, it's, it's just a gnarly story. Right. Um, but yeah, there's something in the water, man. With three five, like even as an Amtracker, I got my forage and I'm like, and, my, and then they're like, hey, you guys, um, you guys can wear it for the ball. I'm like, oh, well, let me get let me get this thing on then. Um, I mean, it's it's just there's a there's a, such a, a deep legacy there man like can you talk a little bit about what like coming out of security forces going to fifth marines and then yeah you, i tell people all the time i mean you go to fifth marines that's like uh yeah you know there's just a lot of history you know, the, the pedigree the folks that have come through that unit and uh uh you know two five and i could be wrong but two five i think is the most decorated battalion in the history of the marine corps and uh, three five is the second most decorated battalion in the Marine Corps. Um, so yeah, going there, I mean, there is a sense of man, I got to live up to the to the legacy of this unit. Of this unit, I gotta I gotta whip it on when I get there. And uh, yeah, I took it very serious. I even to this day, you know, when you're around other Marines, like oh, I was in the Marine Corps. What'd you do? Oh, I was in O three. Who are you with? I was with three five. Sometimes you'll get the oh man, you were with three five. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a little different, you know. That's uh, but you're right. That Fortage, you know, I uh, I hung on to that thing as long as I could. In fact, when I left three five and I went to drone instructor school at Paris Island, um, technically you're still in a TAD status, and mm -hmm. the order states 
until you PCS, you still rate that. So when we were doing our class and individual photos at Paris Island at the end of DI school, I show up in my alphas with my Fortage on. The instructors are losing their mind. You know, what the hell are you wearing that thing for? I said, hey, Gunnery Sergeant, here's the order. And they're like, ah, oh, shit, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I was wearing that thing. I was proud to wear that. Yeah, that's what I say. Like, as an Amtrak, I was back with three, five, I was back with third tracks. And uh, when they said, hey, come to the ball, uh, you guys, you know, the CEO is going to authorize you guys to still wear it since you're with us for a year. I'm like, dude, let me pull that bad boy out then. Um, <laughs> I still got it, man, in my Foot Locker. So right. yeah, it's it's uh it, there's something special, uh something special there really. Um, right. And yeah, I guess it, it it is sort of it is that legacy. Um, so yeah, I guess talking then. So you end up we're talking about your time as a recruit, but then you had your time then as an actual DI as, as well. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, I know you met you met with some challenges that you know like. Yeah, the, the the scars of war, man. They just they manifest themselves in some really um, inopportune ways, right? Right. Yeah. You know, when I when I graduated DI school and you know I hit the streets there as a as a working drill instructor, I probably was at the worst point of my life at that point. I was really struggling with what had happened in Fallujah. Um, it was it was a it, it was a challenge to, for me to even get through DI school. Um, I think there were 50 some students in the class. I didn't do bad. I mean, I think I finished 10th or 11th out of 50. So I wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. too, but it took, it was hard. Yeah. It was hard mentally. Um, and then, you know, to hit the streets, it just, I was having trouble taking care of myself. Right. Let being responsible for training new recruits and making them Marines. And it was just, it was a point in my life that, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm past it. I'm thankful that it's in the rear view mirror because I, I just, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I, uh, you know, a lot of folks out there and I, I refer to it as PTS. I don't like to put the D on the end because mm. I actual reaction to an unnormal situation. Right. But I, I feel like I just I, I I went too fast. I went too soon. I was motivated. And I wanted to train train recruits, um, but I had to get in a better place personally before. And you know that's kind of how you know I was there a year, and uh, yeah. I had I had really good leadership down there. My SAR major uh, battalion SAR major took really good care of me. Once he realized, you know, he he's going through some stuff. Um, he he took me under his wing and. You know, I got relieved for good of cause, you know, so I didn't get any negative paperwork or anything. But that was the best thing for me at the time was I just needed to get off of uh, out of the drill field, you know, and have time to process what I'd been through. And, you know, like so many others, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and your book does a lot of interrogation on this, uh, and I, I highly recommend it. Now, you know, not just for those who are, uh, you know, Fifth Marine buffs or, or that are, you know, Jeremiah Workman fanboys, <laughs> but um, you know, you do you start off the book uh, talking about, you know, uh, the bar in Newport, uh, you know, the sort of a Fifth Marines bar, and how you know yeah. your, your tab is in the in the five figures <laughs> by the time. You walked out of there, um, and and that's a that's a very typical 
coping mechanism. I'm, we've all sort of been there, you know, even even as a battalion XO um, coming out of Afghanistan, you know, it was like, man, I had my watering holes right, and right. I always had a stacked fridge. Right. Um, yeah. It's the easiest thing for us to get our hands on to try to self-medicate, you know, is alcohol. And yeah. um, then you throw in, you're with your buddies and... You know, it just it just kind of snowballs and it it can get out of hand for some folks. And I, you know, I was uh, I have no shame in admitting that I was one of the, I was trying to erase those bad thoughts and feelings with alcohol. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I, I've, yeah, I, I hear you, man. Like even even just going for golfing, uh, I couldn't even start the first hole unless the back rack uh, of the golf cart was completely filled <laughs> with. <laughs> Um, but uh you know and and i i think it's and i don't i don't you know obviously uh i want to be as sensitive as i can here but i think it's worth looking at dude that like on the surface dude you're a navy cross recipient especially on the drill field where it is very much like uh you know it, it is a uh alpha person sort of environment that hard candy shell must have been really really difficult uh for you to one live up to but then two for even those around you to see uh you know what was really going on because you know on the surface your heart is woodpecker lips man like you're impervious to anything <clears throat> like there's no chinks in your armor sort of thing, right, right? I, I definitely think that was one of the harder things is you know People when the SAR, you know, I mentioned the SAR major kind of got involved and had me start going to medical and getting counseling and things like that. A lot of the Marines were like, man, this guy's kind of weak. I mean, he can't perform as a drill instructor, you know, he's tapping out, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, five, six months later, I'm awarded the Navy Cross. And at that point, everybody's tune kind of changed like oh we didn't i'm sorry i, I didn't know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that always bothered me because it shouldn't an award shouldn't change your view of me an award shouldn't change your compassion towards a fellow marine that he may be going through something he or she mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. always bothered me um you know if if a, if a fellow marine is struggling I'm going to take care of that devil dog regardless of if they have a, an award or not. I mean, that's just yeah. what we're human beings. We're supposed to be compassionate, fair, and, you know, take care of our people. And I just, it, it, it was pretty gut-wrenching, actually. Uh, yeah, that's got to feel like really, and even if you sort of accept that aspect of our culture, um, having to live up to that sort of expectation uh, is a weight you know, I mean, we, I guess we, we talked uh, for those who are, you know, uh, living with uh, PTSD or PTS, as you phrase it. Um, it's like wearing a pack, right? And it's just a, that's another encyclopedia's worth of weight in your pack, man. That's just right. really hard to sort of lug around. Right, right. Yeah, I. Uh, that's one of the things, you know. You know, I've I've gone uh, leaps and bounds since then. I'm in a good place. Uh, family's good. Everything seems to be good. Thank God. Um, 
but yeah, that, that was just a bad time in my life. And, you know, when I got that award, the attention that it came with and, um, you know, at the time there were no medals of honor and, right. you know, so it, it was, it was just not my cup of tea. I, I didn't like the, uh, the limelight and, you know, just in, in my, in my train of thought, it was something really bad happened mm-hmm. for me to have this. And, and then, like I said, there, there was the medical part, like, you know, all these people that kind of shunned me when I got my award, they all wanted to be my good buddy. And, oh man, you know, and that, it, to me, it was just bullshit. It was, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't no. have my before this award, I don't, I don't need you now. Yeah. It makes me think, too, and I know, like, at the time uh, that you were, you know, on the drill field was what, about, oh, what, what was that, oh, six? Uh, oh, oh, I think I got there, oh, five, and I left in, like, at the end of oh, six, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we were absolutely, I hate to say the word negligent because that seems like there's ill intent, but we were just so ill-prepared. Right to deal with the mental uh, stresses and what that even, how it manifested itself, what that even looked like. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't, again, I don't want to speak out of turn because I, I only have my own personal experiences to really, uh, as the barometer, but man, I just remember thinking like, I just got to suck it up. Um, you know, this isn't a thing, I'll get through it. Um, yeah, I just need some time right? or whatever the excuses were. And then, you know, leadership wasn't, you know, you had your Oscars at the unit um, and you had people talking about it, but it was just kind of lip service too at the same time. Like, in fact, you know, give them a 96, give him or her a 96, uh, and then we'll, you know, make sure they're doing their buddy pair so that someone's always looking out for them. But, you know, I, I guess we could send him to Wounded Warrior Battalion. You know, there wasn't a lot of attention. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, back then, it, like you said, it was it was almost like taboo. It was like, yeah, yeah what what the hell? Um, and that's one thing. I give the Marine Corps a lot of credit. I really feel like they grabbed the bull by the horns when it comes to uh, mental health awareness and taking care of their folks. Um you know, as as the war went on and as more people were being diagnosed and coming home with issues, I really feel like the Marine Corps took the lead on uh, awareness and upping their game and getting getting folks the treatment they need. Um, I, I just I feel like they came a long way really quickly. Yeah, I, I think once we yeah, like you said, once we sort of took that moment to look ourselves in the mirror. Um, right. It was like, holy shit! Like this is a this is a real problem. We're not dealing with it well. So yeah, I, I agree. I think the Marine Corps did a lot um, in that way. But at the same time, you're still like allowing Marines to voluntarily uh, cut their dwell. You're having dwell time, you know, uh, mandatory. You know, having it shortened. Uh, workup cycles begin almost as soon as you get back. Um, yeah, so there was yeah, some the, institutional things we couldn't get away from, right? Yeah, the operational pace back then was insane. Um, 
you know, you talk to Marines, you know, six, seven, eight, nine deployments and uh, no time to process what had happened on the previous. I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it was a uh, a perfect storm, so to speak. You know, it was just um, but, you know, the mission, you know, the mission was not going away. And I think that the people in this country were depending on the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. they just they really were you gotta we gotta get out there and we gotta defeat this evil that's trying to take over the world yeah so. no it was gnarly man and, and you know especially looking at special duty assignments you know i went right from oif1 to recruiting duty um but you know even then most of the guys on the street were there when all this was going down um there were a couple of us that had come back um and went right into special duty but by the time that you were doing it i mean it was like i don't know the screening process just wasn't accounting for mental health uh, right it's like well dude this guy's a you know he's a mediator get him out there and you know when i was in di school they do a lot of psychiatric type uh, uh inventories and kind of testing to see where you're at uh, mentally before yeah. you get too far into the school um, and uh, myself and another grunt in the DI school class we did get pulled aside because of our answers on our one of our inventories uh, but it was nothing more you know than are you are you good are you okay well <laughs> are you good I love the are you good uh, yeah I'm good dog I mean I'm, I'm here to train recruits I mean yeah. I'm not gonna say no you think you know what I think I just want to go hide <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. The, and and so that I guess that leads us a little bit into your book. Um, you wrote it uh, was published in two thousand nine. Um, how long of a project was that for you? It was about two years. I think we okay. started uh, probably around Thanksgiving of '07. I think is when we started. So and was, was this um, something that sort of? came out of nowhere or was this uh something that you'd planned on doing no you know what i i was on a speaking tour with marcus luttrell the lone survivor oh yeah 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 uh david bellavia who received the medal of honor in the army and um david had a book out called house to house about his time in fallujah and obviously luttrell had his book lone survivor yeah and uh marcus and i on the speaking tour we were roommates and at night, you know, I would kind of pick his brain because he was going through the same things that I was going on. Oh, for sure, yeah. Through. And uh, he told me it was really helpful for him when he put it on paper and got it out there for the world to read. And I was like, yeah, I, I can understand how that could be helpful. Um, and that's kind of how uh, we were given a talk, and I forget, I think it was in D.C. at the Army-Navy Club. And uh, a guy in the audience just happened to be a literary agent who was representing David Bellavia on House to House. He came up to me and he's like, hey, um, God bless you. Your story's amazing. I think you could help a lot of people if you're ever interested. Here's my number. I called him, you know, just to pick his brain a little bit about it. I knew mm -hmm. nothing about it. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Uh, but I always, my goal was if I can help one person, um, then it was worth it yeah and, you know it was never really it was never about me if you, anybody that's read the book it 
I'm not beating my chest. I'm not, um, because there are some folks out there that, oh, you know, he's looking for attention or he's just trying to, you know, it was never about that. Um, I knew because of my award that if I stood up and raised my hand and said, you know what, I'm a human being and I have issues, and it almost led to my demise. If I can stand up and say, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel, get some help, save yourself, save your family, and it was totally worth it for me. Man, yeah, seriously, God bless you on that, man. Um, and so what was that process like for you, though? Was that, did you find it to be therapeutic? I found it to be very therapeutic. You know, John Bruning was my uh, co-writer with me, and uh, him and I, we spent at least an hour, Monday through Friday, on the phone. Um, and I mean, there were times where we'd have to stop what we were doing, and I would just have to, you know, it was emotional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, reliving this, and uh, but at the end of the day, um, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I have received, since that book came out in 2009, I can't tell you the amount of not only Marines and other service members, but, you know, people that were in car accidents, rape victims, you name it. People mm. that with PTS from all of, all sorts of stuff have reached out to me and told me, you saved my life. You helped my son. You helped my daughter. And I can go to bed at night knowing that I did that for the right reasons because I helped somebody. Yeah, that's awesome. That is That is so great. And I think... You know, the the idea that, and I guess going back to the whole perception um, being almost a uh, a curse more than a blessing at times, but it's that idea that, like, actually, you know, interestingly enough, I was talking to um, a buddy of mine um, who we've had on the show, but he's a, uh, he deals a, he's a trauma therapist uh, in Bragg. Uh, he was in. Uh, and he was working with the the SF guys in the 82nd, 101st Bows. And his whole thing was like, it's the guy that you think that you don't have to focus on because they are seemingly so squared away um, right. that actually probably needs it the most. Right. Um, uh, and probably wants it the least. Right. Um, so for someone like you to then write this book and to be so vulnerable, uh, I mean, I think that really does give not just access to how pervasive PTS is in someone's life, but it gives them that sort of license to be vulnerable as well. Right. Absolutely. Like I said, <clears throat> over the years, just getting messages on Facebook and things like that of, uh, thank you. Just, you know, and I, I wasn't looking for a thank you, but the goal was to help some mm. One per just one person, then it was worth it. But we helped a lot more than one. Uh, we've helped thousands, and um, just to try to break down that barrier, that stigma that's in, you know associated with PTS. And uh, I'm just glad, you know, whether it was a very small piece of helping somebody get their life back. Yeah, uh, it, it's pretty powerful stuff extremely extremely um so then what was next for you after that so you know that's oh nine um you then you sort of went into you you uh you leave the core in oh nine and you just you, um 
you stayed in the D.C. area, is that correct? Yeah, I left the Marine Corps in 09. I was medically retired um, out of Wound Warrior Regiment there at Quantico. And uh, they hired me as a civilian there at the regiment. I spent a year there. And then I had the opportunity to go over to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, spent about a year, or excuse me, 10 years there. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, when COVID hit and the world came to a standstill, I looked at my wife and I said, let's go home. You know, I'm tired of sitting on 95 as, you know, in traffic. I'm, uh, I mean, we got people in Fredericksburg, Virginia, riding. Uh, it's in our backyard. Uh, let's go home. I need a slower pace of life. So we literally, uh, we sold our house uh, without a job lined up anything we just we, we made a, a leap of faith and uh we've been here uh, uh march will be two years okay and um uh, i don't regret coming home I, home is home you know i i've been all over the world i've been to all 50 states and um you know there there are those out there that will disagree but for me there's no place like home yeah absolutely uh, and, and very much so because then that led you to the next phase in your life, uh, and that brought you to the campaign trail. Um, what was it about that idea that, like, hey, I want a slower pace, I want to get back to home, uh, and then you get home and it's not quite what you remember, right? Well, and it all went back to, you know, I, we land here uh, in Ohio, like a lot of other states in the country at the time the political climate uh you know some of these politicians they'd shut us down they'd shut down businesses people lost their livelihoods the last dime they had trying to keep their mom and pop businesses going um and i've always been kind of had my finger on the pulse of the community and what's going on and as i looked around as i drove around i just saw it, it was not working kids were out of school uh, mental health conditions were on the rise because kids didn't have that interaction with their friends. I mean, the, you name right, it, there was right. going on. And uh, I called uh, a teacher, a former teacher of mine that is uh, pretty heavily involved in uh, politics here in Ohio. And I said to her, how can I get involved? I want to help. I, you know, we're taught in the Marine Corps, don't come to the table bitching unless you want to be part of the solution. Right. And that's exactly how this started for me was when I called her, she goes, oh, my God, I think you would be a good candidate for lieutenant governor. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking, uh, well, maybe I should start off on the school board or. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how she introduced me to Joe Blystone, who was running for governor. And we had Joe and I, you know, we believed the same thing. We wanted uh, we wanted to bring back. Ohio and turn the ship around and get it back on track and uh that's that's how I got involved yeah uh, the typical marine man like can't just go big or go home right right and you know what I I was at you know out on the campaign trail was why did you get involved in politics and I, I, I it was a simple answer I don't want to be in politics I'm involved in politics out of necessity trust me yeah yeah I don't go from the frying pan to the fire but if nobody, if I'm not impressed with anybody that we keep putting up, I'm tired of holding my nose every time I go to vote. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, as a citizen, shouldn't we be able to go vote and feel good about it? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's such an itch. I mean, there's so much to unpack there because, like, here you are fighting, literally fighting for other people have the right to vote and to have the right to uh, a fr- a freedom of speech. I, I remember talking to my Marines. Um, this was at sort of the end of our deployment. Things are going really well, actually, as far as like our fight against the insurgency. Right. But things were kind of going off the rails as far as like civil providing for essential services, right. uh, the leaders that we were backing, um, those sorts of things. Like guys who were really great at helping us fight Al Qaeda really sucked ass at governing them, their people. Right. Um, and so all of a sudden we started getting protests against us. Right. And I know a lot of my Marines are getting like really upset. And I'm like, hey, gents, man, this is what we fought for. Like, right. take it in. This is us winning. They're doing it. They're doing it peacefully. And they have a voice for once in their lives. Or I guess, what, you know, it's Iraq. So it wasn't like Afghanistan. But for the first time in a decade or longer, they could actually say what they want to say without fear of repro- uh, reciprocity. Like, dude, this is a win. Yeah, it kind of sucks for our ego. Um, and so anyways, I, uh, that's a really long way of saying. So for you then to have fought for other people, but then to come, like you said, come home, and then now you're holding your nose at the ballot box, man. That's like, that's really, a, it's a lot, man. But you know, that's what we've been doing for 100 years here. Yeah, it yeah. It wasn't just Ohio. It was, uh, it was all over the nation. Um, we were at a, we're, we're at a point where, you know, I've never come out and said I I didn't believe or there was no such thing as COVID. I'm very uh, public in my answers. Yes, there is a virus. Yes, COVID was out there. But at least here in Ohio, the people in charge were, you know, they shut down all the mom and pop businesses, but they mm. left Walmarts and the, the home mm. open and they had record sales. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, ruining people's livelihoods over this. They were picking winners and losers. Yeah. It was unfortunate. Um, you know, like I said, the kids being masked, well, first they were, they weren't at school. Um, they're, they're learning over a computer. Um, then we send them back to school and they're wearing masks for eight hours. That's child abuse. And I just, I could not sit on the sidelines any longer. And, you know, I wanted to get involved. I'm a fighter. I'm a, and that, out on the road, out on the campaign trail, that, that's what I told people. You know what? I fought extreme uh, uh, terrorists over in, in the Middle East. I'm here to fight for your rights and for your children and your grandchildren. We've got to turn this ship around. Yeah. And how about we get somebody in there that's going to do things for the right reasons when nobody's looking? Yeah, yeah. We're well, tired that's, yeah, that's, of, we're tired that's that marine of, integrity, right? Yeah, we're tired of crooks. Yeah. And then, too, I think that's uh, such a um, I I think I'm so glad that you're mentioning these things um, here for the show, because for our listeners, man, I really want to drive the point home as explicitly and adamantly as I can, that when you see a problem ducking out and I get it, sometimes doing nothing is an action. I'm not discounting those who feel like uh, they're going to voice their uh, opinion or their worldview by abstaining, but understanding what that action does, uh, what the ripple effects of that action are. And you're saying, uh, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but based off of what you've done, 
uh, is that you said, I'm going to be that change that right. I see needs, right. that needs to happen. And, and I think that sort of leadership is so important, especially now as we're looking at the data of uh, service members who just either are completely apathetic towards the process or feel so disenfranchised that they don't participate. Um, and I think for you, you can really be sort of a beacon for all of us who, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, right? Um, you've got to participate, man. You got to get in there, right? And that's the thing, you know. I, I'm, I'm a conservative, but I don't care where, like you said, I don't care where you fall on the spectrum. If you believe in something, stand up for it, be heard, and just and be a leader. People are naturally uh, attracted to leadership. They people want to be led. Most people give me, give me something, give me, help me, you yeah. know, and, uh, that's really what it was. I, you know, as I drove around the state and I hit every nook and cranny in the state, people were looking for something different. They were tired of the status quo. They were tired of the same old, same old, you know, the lesser of the two, you always hear that in politics. I got to go vote for the lesser of the two evils. Well, let's, you know, that's a dog chasing its tail. It's insanity. Right. Let's stop this cycle. You know, there are so many veterans out there that are qualified and should and could grab the bull by the horns and get active. That's the only way we're going to change this for the good. We have yeah. a lot to bring to the table leadership-wise, and we need to step up and do it. Man, amen to that. Because. And I get caught in this as well, uh, so I'm not trying to take some sort of like morally superior view on this stuff, but it is so hard at times to just like, sometimes it's so overwhelming. Like, where do I even begin? Right. And I think for you, just asking the question, right? Like, hey, how right. can I help? Right. You know, when I made that first initial phone call, I didn't know if I was going to get asked to send emails out. I didn't know if I was going to get asked to go door-to-door -door canvassing. I had no idea what that phone call was going to lead to. It simply was me saying, how can I get involved? I can't sit on the sidelines anymore. Mm, yeah. you know? And uh, I, to, even to my surprise, I there, there I was running for lieutenant governor for the state of Ohio. And, uh, you know, it's an experience I would never, uh, obviously, the, the incumbent won uh, the primary. And we'll win the, the general election here next week, but um, we're not going away. We, uh, Joe and I, we, you know, we got over 230,000 votes in this state. We won 22 counties um, on a shoestring budget, and we're not going away. We're, we're going to keep doing what's right for the right reasons. People deserve, they just deserve it. Yeah. They deserve somebody that has integrity, somebody that's not getting into this to fatten their wallet or their purse, but that truly cares about this, the citizens of, of wherever their state is. They deserve the best. Absolutely. Um, and so I guess that leads to my next question is, you know, I guess what's next for you? So you, you, you feel like you got to, sort of it's in the blood now um <laughs> <laughs> you know after the primary uh, back on may 3rd um 
nobody likes to lose. Sure. You know, I was for for about a day and a half, two days, I was pretty down and out, moping around the house. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know, I think I'm done with this. You know, because you do when you when you get into the the world of politics at that level, you're out there. You're they're not just attacking you. They're attacking your family. They're attacking mm. everything. So you're vulnerable. Your whole family's vulnerable. It's a lot, not just on me, but my wife and my kids. And, um, but I told my wife, I, I think I'm done. And then <laughs> there's about three more days went by. I said, you know what? I've gotten 5,000 Facebook messages begging me not to quit and to stay involved. I can't abandon these people. I just can't. Yeah. We've come too far. They look at me for the, you know, as an inspiration or a leader, whatever the case may be, but they, they want me to stay involved and I, I cannot abandon them at this point. So, yeah, we do have plan. I, I can't really get into a whole lot of detail yet for uh, strategic reasons here in the sure. state, but, uh, we do have big plans uh, for 2026. Um, we're not going anywhere. Uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, making appearances around the state and supporting certain candidates throughout the process. Uh, but 26, 2026, I think is going to be a good year for us. And it's so refreshing to hear uh, that it's your desire to be a good leader for your state that is propelling you and keeping you in the game vice what you hear a lot of times. And that's, you know, the self-interest, the typical yeah. politician that, that, that everyone is so weary of these days. Yeah. You know, people are sick of these career politicians. You know, we have folks that they get elected and they're there for 40, 50, 60 years. That's yeah. not good for anything. That's good right. for nobody. And I made it very clear on the campaign trail. If you elect me, I will do my four, or if you reelect me my eight years, you will never see me run for another office again. I don't want to be a career politician. Right. I want to get in the ring. I want to do what I have to do. I want to turn the ship around and get us on the right track and then hopefully pass the, you know, pass the reins to somebody like-minded with the same convictions and, and uh, integrity and all that that I have. And that is like, again, that that's just so refreshing and, and really, uh, you know, my, my hat's off to you because um, it is so easy to sort of look around and go, man, this isn't like things have kind of gone astray or this isn't how I remember it or like, right. look at what's happening now. And then to just then that's it. That's the end of the conversation. Right. And then you just sit around and complain with your buddies, you know, at the bar or whatever. Right. <laughs> um. So, dude, yeah, it's it's so great uh, that you and I and I, I really want to sort of really harp to, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, veterans and politics, man. And those numbers are just dwindling. Uh, and it's and it's not about like, oh, we need more veterans so that we get more veterans benefits or veterans rights or whatever. But there's a certain amount of sacrifice and that culture of sacrifice that we need to infuse back into uh, our, our, like our, into our government, even at the small, at the small level. Right. We need people that are honest. 
they're doing things for the right reasons, especially when nobody's looking. And generally, 99% of the time with military folks, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. You know, um, I, I won't say any names, but we have lead, we, we have members of Congress and Senate that they've been doing it for 50, 60 years, you know, on a salary of a, roughly 160000 a year, but they're worth $100 million. Mm-hmm. Right. The math just doesn't add up. I mean, right. Yeah, and they're only working 160 days out of the year. <laughs> right. It just it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that they pulled the wool over our heads. And um, the time is, I think the time is now. We need to inject good people into our government. And I don't care if it's school board, city council, yeah. Congress, Senate, you name it. We have to get involved because I, I just feel like we we bring a lot to the table. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, even like you said, even if it's just volunteering, you know, one saturday out of the right, month right. to send emails or you know pass out flyers or whatever right. but just be part of the process right to, to sling stones from the uh from the cheap seats yeah because ultimately and this is what i told everybody on the trail this isn't about me it's not about you it's about our kids and our grandkids yeah that's who's going to pay yeah. if we fix things well it's about democracy too right which is kind of what you're saying is that right if we don't participate in our own democratic process, it stops becoming a democratic process. Right. We end up with like a oligarchy or a right. God help us, a monarchy. Monarchy, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, Jeremiah, man, I appreciate you so much taking the time this morning to be with me. Uh, where can our listeners find you? I know you t- you can't really talk about specifics of what's next for you, but. Where can we find you? Where can we, you know, become fanboys of the of the workman, uh, the uh, Jeremiah Workman yeah, uh, project? Uh, so I I don't do a whole ton of, uh, you know, I don't have Snapchat, Instagram. I am on Facebook. You got TikToking? Not I don't. <laughs> only on Tuesday nights. <laughs> um, I I am on Facebook, and everything that I kind of put out there will be on Facebook. Um, you know, up and coming things, appearances at different events, things like that. Um, there is a, I do have a website for the book, jeremiahworkman.com. Um, but Facebook's the easiest way to get me. Okay. And, uh, Are you on LinkedIn at all? You know, I don't, I'm not even on LinkedIn. I think okay. I have an account, but I haven't done much with it. Um, but yeah. Okay. So Facebook hits you up. Is that uh, just Jeremiah at Jeremiah Workman? Yep. yep. Okay. If you just, yep. Well, great. We'll definitely put the links in the show uh, descriptions once this airs. Uh, Man, thank you so much for your service. Uh, Thank you for all you're doing now. And then, you know, uh, please continue to encourage our young uh, Marines, sailors, airmen, soldiers, coasties. uh, Just, man, get involved. And if you're a vet, definitely get involved, man, because we are not representing our democracy the way i mean we all fought for this damn thing that's it that's it get in there right hey thanks for your service and uh thank you for having me on this morning and uh you know semper fi yeah we'll be in touch man thank you so much all right sounds good have a good one you too scuttlebutt is a production of the marine corps association i am william truding 
but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.